open to the Old Testament book of Psalm, Psalm 47, Psalm 47. Psalm 47. We have been trying to faithfully stick with the daily Bible reading. I got ahead a couple weeks ago. I got ahead. I I did a CERN because I I study far ahead of where we are. Uh, I look ahead and and I actually took some territory away from uh, (laughs) Pastor Zach. But but we're on track and uh, we're trying to uh, look at a couple of passages of Scripture. Now today, Psalm 47 is today's passage in the daily Bible reading. So we're going to look at Psalm 47 today, but we're going to connect it with another passage of Scripture on Friday. On Friday in the New Testament, we're looking at Acts chapter 17. And so we're going to connect the two. And, uh, and uh, so I hope you'll uh, appreciate how we do that. But I want to ask you a question. You have a Bible in your hand, and, and it's important for you to know the Bible from, for all of us to know the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation. It's really important for us to do that. If I were to ask you to give me a one-sentence summary on what the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is all about, could you give it to me? There are many ways to explain it. One way, and one that many of you would probably say, is this is God's plan of salvation. Tells us how we can all be saved and have eternal life. Never have to worry about death. Just that temporary separation between the body and the soul. Some of you may go a little deeper and you may think about issues that surround God's plan of salvation. But this morning, if I were to give you a definition, I would say that this is God's plan for blessing the world through Israel. Now, the blessing is the blessing of salvation, but I just want you to think of it from a different angle for just a second. It's God's plan for blessing the world through His chosen people, Israel. Now, let's take a look at Psalm 47 and see why I'm even suggesting that fact to you. Now, what I want to do today is I want to use those six questions. Well, there's actually eight questions that I think everybody needs to ask every time we read Scripture. We boil them down to four categories. And so the first two questions are in the first category. When we look at a passage of Scripture, we're looking to see what the problem is. Is there any problems? Are there any problems in that passage for us to endure? Or... Since occasionally you'll have a passage of Scripture that will be just such a blessing, all we need to do is embrace the blessing. So I ask you this question in Psalm 47, which is it? Are there problems here for us to endure, or are there, is there a blessing here for us to embrace? And if we read this passage of Scripture, and I'll start with a couple of verses, O oh, clap your hands, all you people, shout to God with a voice of triumph, For the Lord Most High is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. He will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. He will choose our inheritance for us, the excellence of Jacob whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout. 
the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. And if I were to read the last several verses, I would come to the conclusion there's nothing negative in this psalm at all. Nothing. It's positive. What a relief. What a refreshment. I was going to just stick with Acts chapter 17 today, but when I saw this, I said, oh, we got to connect those two. I couldn't resist. This is totally positive. There's nothing negative in here at all. Look at the first, look at the, look at the first verse of Scripture here. It says, oh, clap your hands, all you peoples. You clap when you're happy, right? You clap when you're appreciative. You clap when you want to acknowledge someone, right? So you clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with a voice of what? Defeat? Shout to God with a voice of triumph. I hate to use this analogy because we abuse sports today. Sometimes we're sitting there on Sunday when we probably should be in church. But, but, but you know, you're in a stadium and you're watching your team play. And when they make a touchdown, what do you do? You shout and you say, wow, this is great. And so this is what God wants us to do spiritually. He wants us to be as excited, excited about who he is and what he does as you and I would be excited when we're sitting down there in Heinz Field or, or PNC Park or anywhere else, a local game or whatever. Now, notice what it says in verse 1 here. You and I, I know what's happening, and we have a question for this in a couple of moments here. But I know what's happening in our minds. But I want you to notice something here. Oh, clap your hands, all you people. Is that what it says? Is that what it says? Read it again. Clap your hands, all you people. Alls. Is it singular or is it plural? It's plural. And the fact of the matter is that if you read the whole passage of Scripture, he's going to connect the peoples with the nations. Do you understand what he is saying to us? He is telling us God led David probably, who wrote this, probably David, Maybe the sons of Korah, they certainly were David's musicians. And they served later than David as well into the reign of Hezekiah. And, and, and we don't know who wrote it for sure. But God is saying that we want you, we want all the peoples of the world to shout and clap their hands with a voice of triumph. How can you get all the peoples of the world to join together to do that? See, that, that's why I'm excited about this passage of Scripture, because the day is going to come when that's going to happen. Now, let me put it in perspective for you, and I'll do it as quickly as I can. If you, for instance, if you look at the history of Israel, you will discover that there are many lists of nations in the history of Israel. They knew a lot more than we do. The problem of coming to a passage of Scripture like this is we don't know a lot of the background. 
We really don't. We really don't. But when he says, clap your hands, all you peoples, no doubt the Israelites are certainly have to include all of the surrounding nations that caused them so much trouble. The Moabites, the Edomites, the Ammonites, the Amorites, the Philistines. They have to include all of those nations. And nations come and go, but the fact of the matter is that in the book of Isaiah, in the book of Jeremiah, in the book of Ezekiel, there are many passages of Scripture that are devoted to describing the trouble that Israel has had with its surrounding nations. You have several all grouped together in Isaiah, several in Jeremiah, several in Ezekiel, and several in other passages of Scripture. But I'm, I'm bringing this to your attention because you want to jump into this and you want to say, okay, if I were an Israelite, how would I feel about this statement? Where God is saying, clap your hands, all you people, shout to God with a voice. The psalmist is saying that. under the, He's being led by God to say that. All you peoples. You mean I'm supposed to stand side by side with my enemy? Now, go back to Genesis 10 for just a moment. Just a moment, okay? So you can put this in perspective in a wider range, all right? In Genesis 10, this is, uh, this is about the time of the Tower of Babel, and God has given to us the historical information in two chapters, in chapters 10 and 11. And in chapter 10, after Noah gets off the ark, he gets off the ark with how many people? How many people? Three sons and their wives, and it's Noah and his wife, right? So there's just, what, eight of them. Well, you know the sons of Noah in Genesis chapter 10? The sons of Noah are Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, I want you to notice, and I'm not going to read all of this. I'm just going to bring this to your attention so you can understand uh, this in, in a better way when you're trying to work your way through this passage of Scripture. The first son that is named here is Japheth. And he has seven sons. We're not going to read the names of the seven sons. But after we have the seven sons given to us, then the biblical account focuses on two of those sons and then gives us the general locality of where those sons settled. So in verse 5, from these, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, every one according to his language, according to their families, into their what? Nations. So when we look at the Western civil, we looked at Western civilization, we look at the Greeks and we look at the Romans and we look at all of those and we say, wow, okay, we know where they all came from. And so there's a great big chance that your family has come from the family of Japheth. It's not conclusive unless you've traced it, but there's a big, there's a big chance that it has. Then the son of Ham, uh, the, the son Ham is mentioned in verse 6. And four of his sons are, folk, are, 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 are listed there with a focus on three of them. And this is where Nimrod comes from. And I just want to 
bring it to your attention so that this is where the Canaanites come from. And the Bible says in verse 18 and 19, when it describes the locality, it says, And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon as you go towards Gerar, as far as Gaza, then as you go towards Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zebulim, as far as Lasha. Now those are old words. These were the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, and in their what? Nations. And then you have the third son, Shem, from which the Jewish people come. The Bible says that Shem had, Shem had several sons, and there's a five, five of them are mentioned here, and there's a focus on two of them. And But all I want you to see in verse 30, 31, and 32 are, are these words. And their dwelling place was from Mesha as you go towards Sephar, the mountain of the east. These were the sons of Shem according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, according to their what? Nations. And the surrounding nations of Israel, by the way, so many of them were relatives. And yet they were enemies. Now, verse 32, you read this with me together. If you have a New King James, it's no problem. These were the families of the sons of Noah according to their generations in their nations. And from these, the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. And you're telling me, oh, clap your hands, all you people shout to God with a voice of triumph. Everybody hand in hand. That's exciting. My only question is when. <laughs> well, you know, it's been happening for 2,000 years. Now, <clears throat> that's the, the first part of it. The second question is this. Is there a truth for me to believe or a promise to claim? Those two questions you should always ask when you read the Bible. Is there a truth for me to believe or a promise to claim? And when we get to verse 2, we have some truth to believe. And your truth, what you believe, is going to determine what you do. And so he gives to us a reason here. I love it when God gives to us reasons. He says, clap your hands. All the nations of the earth should clap their hands. Why? For the Lord Most High is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. Part of the earth? No. All the earth. Now, in verses 3 and 4, I want you to notice a change. The psalmist is talking to the Jewish people. But in verse 3, notice what he does. He says, He will subdue the peoples under us, and the nations under our feet, he will choose our inheritance for us, 
And he describes that inheritance by calling it the excellence of Jacob, whom he loves. And we'll, we'll look at that in just a second. But I want you to look at this truth to believe for just a second, because the Lord is awesome. And one of the reasons why he is awesome is because he is most high. I was horrible at English. I, I just, uh, I was just so bad. I just, uh, it was awful. What I'm explaining to you right now, I probably didn't even know when I graduated from high school. I'm telling you. But we compare adjectives and adverbs. Oh, I already lost half of you, I know. You'd have lost me too. But let's take the word good, for instance. When we say something is good and we want to make it better than that, we say, oh, something is good, but something is better. And if we want to make it better than that, it's comparative. We compare these words. And pardon me for butchering this the way I'm probably doing it. But we say something's good and something's better or something's best, right? Good, better, and best. Now, normally we don't have, normally all we take is uh, we take a word and we add ER to it and we say something is great, something is greater, and something is great test, right? We add the EST. Something is small, something is uh, smaller, and something is smallest, if we want to go in the other direction. Something is dark, something is darker, something is darker. You say, Gary, why are you wasting your time on, on English here? Well, because you need to know what happens here in this passage of Scripture. If you're going to get excited, if you're going to get excited about this passage of Scripture, you need to know that God is awesome because He is most high. So he's not just good, better, he's best. He's not just great, greater, he's greatest. But, you know, the word most and more are two words in the English language where we don't add those kind of words to make them, you change them. You can't change it. You say he's more good, he's more best, he's best. You know, you can't do that with the words more and most. All we can do is use the word most. God is most high. What does that mean? That means there's no comparison between God and anybody else. Nothing. Try to compare him and it just won't work. It just won't work. One of, one of my, my favorite passages of scripture is right here in the Psalms 95 verse 3. In Psalm 95 verse 3, the Bible kind of gets us thinking in that direction. And uh, the Bible says in Psalm 95, verse 3, um, wait a minute, Psalm 95, oh yeah, Psalm 95, verse 3. For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. Notice he doesn't use the word greatest. He doesn't have to use the word greatest because there's not going to be any comparison after he says what he says next. The Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. In His hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are His also. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry ground. Oh, come, let us worship. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Choir sang that this morning. Now, think about that. Think about that. 
So he is awesome because he is most high, exalted above everything and everybody else. So that when we get to the next line and we've already eliminated God's competition, we can say he is a great king over all the earth. (laughs) He is. And you know what? When I connect verse 1 with verse 2 and I get to verse 3 where we focus in on us, and you and I can put our names there, not because we have any legal right to do that from a historical perspective, but we have a legal right to do that because we are children of Abraham. Say legal? Yeah, yeah. It's forensic. Now, all right. So when I put verse 1 and 2 together, I say to myself, God, what you're asking the nations of the world to do is to get excited about what you did or are doing through Israel to bless the world. Get excited about how God is using or used Israel to bless the world. You're not going to get everybody together to clap their hands and shout to God unless we understand that is true. So he says he is a great king over the earth. He will, number one, subdue the peoples under us. Number two, the nations under our feet. And he will choose our inheritance for us. So two things stand out. He will choose and he will subdue. And the only thing I can say to you is because a lot of people look at this passage of Scripture and say, Oh, when did that happen? Well, it's a process. You know, I, I don't like to sit down and pull out all of the books in my library that talk about what everybody in the world has ever said about every passage of Scripture, but I do it from time to time. Because people can get frustrated over a passage of Scripture like this because their minds start working and they see, keep saying, I don't know, I don't know, I don't see any of this. It's a process. It is a process. But let me, let me say this to you. So did God subdue nations under Israel? Yes, we don't, get in, we don't need to get into the history of all of that. Why do we need to get into the history of all of that? We know what happened to the Israelite nation. We know how God advanced Israel during the time of David and how he extended it during the time of Solomon. We know how they practically lost everything during the time of Hezekiah and then they got, got, got territory back when they returned. We, we know all of that history. We know all of that history. But I want to focus on the choose our inheritance. Because that's where we can get really excited. God not only subdued peoples under us, but he also chose our inheritance for us. When Israel was going into the land of Canaan, the Bible says that he was giving them a good land. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, one of my favorite passages of Scripture, he was giving them a good land, a land that was flowing with milk and honey, that had all kinds of natural resources. He even lists the natural resources in the passage of Scripture. 
He says it's a good land. It's something that you guys can be proud of, and proud they were. So it really plays into what he says next when he says, when he kind of identifies what he means by our inheritance. This, this inheritance that I'm talking about is the excellence of Jacob whom he loves. Now, I don't know how many of you are old enough to remember the words pride and joy. How many are old enough to remember the words pride and joy? Is that all? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> if someone would say to you back in the day, I want to show you my pride and joy, what would they do? They would open their purse or open their wallet and pull out a picture of their kids. These are my pride and joy. I remember my cousin coming up to me one day and he said to me, can I show you my pride and joy? And, um, and I thought, well, he doesn't have any kids. What's he going to do? So he got his wallet and he pulled out, just to show you how popular this was, they printed a card. Remember years ago they printed a card because there were two soap. There were two soaps out there, one called Pride and one called Joy. Remember that? You all remember that? And he said, I'm going to show you a picture of my pride and joy. And he pulled out a card and it had a picture of a bottle of pride and a bottle of joy on it. That's how popular this statement was. But I share it with you because just as popular as that statement is to us or was to us, it was just as popular for the Israelites to say the excellence of Jacob whom he loves, the pride of Jacob. The pride of Jacob is the promised land. And the promised land is mentioned so many times in the scripture as God's inheritance for his people. Now we can go quickly through this, the rest of this. This won't take very long at all because we're kind of repeating ourselves when we go through the rest of this passage of Scripture. But the third question, and I just want to bring it to your attention because our minds work this way. Is there a sin to avoid or an attitude to change? And I'm going to say most likely there is a sin to avoid or an attitude to change. And those attitudes would probably be unbelief, cynicism, or skepticism. I'm serious. A lot of people are going to read that God is king over all the earth, and they're going to say, well, then why is the earth in such bad condition? Right? Since when, you, you wouldn't want anybody to come up to you as a parent and say, your kid has rebelled against you. You must be a bad parent. Would you want that? Is there any necessarily any connection between the two? No. Or you could go to the Lord and say, you must be a bad, bad God. You had some angels rebel against you. Let's be careful. Let's be careful we start in our cynicism and our skepticism to claim that God is not a good God because of the condition of the earth. And instead, what we need to do is see how God has sustained this earth for us with all of the difficulties. Don't remember, remember, he's the one who imposed the curse on us in the first place. But someone will look at these phrase would say, we'll subdue and say, well, I don't know. We'll subdue. Isn't the wicked winning? Looks to me like the wicked is winning. And some may look at this and may say, oh, you're going you're gonna to put, put people under us? 
Well, my goodness, we saw what happened to Israel, and a lot of people today, believe it or not, there are a lot of people today that believe that Israel shouldn't even exist. They lost their right, they say, to the Holy Land, and they shouldn't even exist, and nobody should be supporting them for anything. There are a lot of people who say that. And they'll say, this isn't relevant today. This is all history. See what I mean? There's an attitude to change and sin to avoid. But here's our final and fourth question. Is there a command to obey and an example to follow? Yes. The command is clap your hands, shout to God, all of you peoples, and then jump down to verses 6 and 7. Sing praise to God, sing praises, sing praises to our King, sing praises. We need to get excited about the fact that God is king over the earth. And in order to get excited about God is king over the earth, I just want to say this to you as an application in verse 7. Notice what he says at the end of verse 7. He says, sing praises with understanding. You know, I think a lot of people walk into church and they don't understand. They, don't, they look at all the stuff that's gone out there and they look at all the things that are going wrong and they come in here and then we try to sing a hymn. <laughs> and we're bored stiff with it because we don't understand. Sing with understanding. I like the guy who said, sing with understanding. If you understand what you sing, you will feel what you understand. Isn't that good? All right, we got to wrap it up. So God wants us to clap. God wants us to shout. God wants us to sing. Now, what does Acts 17 have to do with it? Well, <clears throat> a lot of you, a lot of us would look at this passage of Scripture and say, well, that's the Old Testament, and I don't see any relationship to the New Testament. Paul is going all over the Roman Empire, and he is sharing the gospel everywhere. 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 I just want to bring it to your attention in Acts chapter 2, that in Acts chapter 2, when Peter gives his sermon on the day of Pentecost, the Bible says that there were dwelling in Jerusalem, in verse 5 of that chapter, from every nation under heaven. Wow. Verse 9, he lists the nations, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamians, all etc., etc. Even, even visitors from Rome, believe it or not. We're in Jerusalem, and Cretans and Arabs, and, and it, it, keep that in mind, because isn't God in the, pro see, God is in the process, even in the time, at the time of the New Testament, God is in the promise of bringing about what he says he wants us to do in Psalm 47. That's what he's doing. So here's, here's, here's Paul. He's on Mars Hill, the Areopagus. And, uh, or, or, or Areopagus, how you want to pronounce it. Um, he's preaching his sermon. Now, he's got, a, he's got a bad audience. He's got an audience that's skeptic right off the bat. They think he's a babbler. They don't think he knows what he's talking about. But they're there to listen to what he says. And, and Paul says to them in verse 22, here's his sermon, and I just want to read this. This is going to take a, a couple a minute or two. Paul stood in the midst of these people and he said, you know, I was going through your city and I, 
I realize that you guys are very, very religious people. He says, because there, there, there are idols everywhere. There, there are altars everywhere. It kind of reminds me of Pausanias. I have a book written by a Greek, uh, Pausanias, during the time of the first century. And Pausanias are late, late, later in that time period. And um, he gives us a tour. He's a, he's a tourist guide. And when he gets to Athens, he says, when you walk through Athens, I want you to notice all of the, all of the idols. He says, they're all over the place. There are hundreds of them. And he identifies them. He says, when you're walking up this street, you're going to see this. When you're walking up this street, you're going to see this. So I know what Paul was going through was going, going through Paul's mind. He says, there are lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of idols. But what does he say in verse 24? Everybody together. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. You make these idols as if they represent anything. They don't represent anything. They're just dead pieces of wood and metal that you hammered together. Now notice what he says in verse 26. Everybody read this. And I'm not going to comment. I don't need to because I think we saturated ourselves with Psalm 47. You can just drop this right in. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. Paul gets it. See? And has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. And the reason is God's plan. You didn't know this, did you? What's the next verse say? God's plan is that he is using the boundaries of the nations and the places where he put everybody so that we could all come to Christ. Now, he's got the strategy. He's working it all out. Not me. Not me. But I can give you, uh, personally, if you ask me, I'll give you one of the best illustrations of that that you're ever going to find in human history. I just don't want to take the time to do it here. But if you ask me personally, I will share that with you. In Him we live and move and have our being. Your poets even talk about God being the author of life and we are His offspring. I'm paraphrasing what he says. And so let me conclude with this. Just as God shaped the destiny of Israel... He is shaping our destiny. Amen? If you can't come to that conclusion, I don't think you looked at the passage of Scripture very well. And He is putting together our inheritance. 1 Peter 1, 4, one of my favorite passages of Scripture on God having a, giving us a living inheritance. And it's not just an inheritance of property. The property is going to be the new earth. But it's a home. It's a home with everything that a home comes with. And so I think we need to anticipate with joy not only the new earth that he's going to create for us, the real estate of heaven now, what we have here. It's under his providence that we have it. We live here. But think about this, for one day we will be in hand in hand with all of the peoples of the world in our inheritance, which we call home. And just to keep you on track with that, because a lot of times I think we, we spend a lot of time talking about physical situations. 
But do you remember the situation where a family was standing out on the sidewalk because the fire company had to come and put out a fire that had just destroyed their home? And there's all, there's mom and dad and the kids are standing out there on the sidewalk. And their home, their house had been destroyed. House had been destroyed. And a reporter is there and he stuffs the microphone in the face of the youngest child who's only about three or four. And he says, what are you going to do now that your home, your house has been destroyed? And she says, I think home had been destroyed. And she says, our home hasn't been destroyed. We just don't have a house to put it in at the moment. But our home hasn't been destroyed. Broaden your thinking on all of this. Because I know we can get pretty earthly in our thinking when we look at what's going on around us. And you and I need to remember that God has promised us an inheritance and we ought to get excited about it. And we ought to get excited about it in the reunion that we're going to have one day when God brings all of the nations to the place where they will worship Him. If they don't, they're gone. God will judge them. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the encouragement that you have given us and the practical illustration of that in the Apostle Paul who saw this, no doubt, as a prophecy of the evangelism of the world. Father, we are your church. We know that we're doing the most important work there is in the world, more important than anything. We know that. Lord, we want to be encouraged to do it with excitement and understanding. And so, Lord, we pray that you would just just take this passage of Scripture and just grill it into our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.